All right. So this morning, uh, I'm really excited, man. This morning, we're going to start a new series, and uh, it's always good when we get to start a new series. We do some really long series, like if we're doing a book study. We've been in the book of Revelation. We've actually been in Revelation for a good bit. We took a break this summer, and uh, we want to just touch on a few topics before we get back into the book of Revelation. And so this morning, we're starting a series called The Way of a Disciple, and my goal in this, and I think what our church needs, is a little bit of time just to revisit and refocus and re-engage on the ministry of discipleship. And so if, if you're part of our church, uh, you know that discipleship is something that we, we, man, we value. We invest in making disciples, not just sharing the gospel, but helping people grow to maturity in their faith. And so, uh, man, it's, a, it's an important ministry of the local church. As a matter of fact, let me just say this. Most churches don't understand the ministry of discipleship. What I mean by that is they think that discipleship is reaching people with the gospel, getting them into church, and prayerfully through the pulpit ministry, and that should be a part of it, but through the pulpit ministry, somehow they're going to grow to maturity, and yet God has given us clear instruction in His Word on how to make disciples. He's given us patterns, both Old Testament and New Testament. Even the ministry of Jesus Christ was, was making disciples. And so this thing of disciple-making is, is critically important. And, and so for us, for, for, for some of you that have been here for a minute, uh, my prayer is that we get reminded of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And maybe you're new to our church or newer since we've done a discipleship series. Uh, I've been praying that God will help you see the importance of this ministry in your own life and in the corporate body of believers that you are a part of. And so, and so here, let me just make a few statements as we get going uh, this morning. Some people think and believe that just being saved, in other words, knowing Christ as Lord and Savior, automatically makes you a disciple of Jesus Christ. But let me help you understand biblically that you can personally know Christ as Savior and yet not truly be following Him with your life, okay? And, and so biblically, we want to we see what God's Word says about truly being a disciple of Christ. And maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you're just checking this church thing out, and, and I'm glad you're here. And maybe you're tuning in online, and, and this is somebody sent you a link, and you're just interested in Christianity. Man, listen, the greatest news on this planet is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and is able to forgive us through his shed blood. That, that we all have a penalty because we're all sinners and we deserve God's judgment. But because of Christ, he offers his shed blood in exchange for our sinful life. He, he's willing to pardon us and forgive us through his finished work on the cross. That is the gospel. And listen, that's the greatest message in the, in the world. And if you believe that... That makes you a believer in Christ. And I'm thankful, man. I'm thankful somebody shared that message with me. At the age of 21, I'd never really heard it put together like that. And I believe there was a God, and I even believe the story of Jesus was real, but I didn't understand how my sin required God's judgment. And, and so someone took their Bible and showed me that, hey, man, we're all sinners, and because of our sin, we're guilty, and we deserve a punishment for that sin, and, and yet Christ bore our sins on the cross of Calvary, and if we'll receive a free gift that's been purchased by somebody else, we can be saved. 
man, that message came to me at the age of 21. I trusted Jesus Christ to save me from my sin, but that didn't automatically make me a disciple of Christ. Because a disciple of Christ is someone who actually follows Christ. It's someone who actually positions Jesus Christ as the Lord of their life. And, and, so, and so, you know, there, there's a verse in the, the Old Testament. It, you guys ever read about a dude named Solomon? Have you, have you guys read that, that dude in the Old Testament? Man, king of Israel, really good dude in, in some aspects, but then kind of got crazy. Like he, he actually uh, entertained himself with the complexities of life and whether it was art or culture or engineering or architecture or entertainment or pleasure Man, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So you know he wasn't thinking straight. You know what I'm saying? You just know it. He, he, he went to the nth degree to experience everything this life has to offer. He's the wisest man that ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. He experienced more than any of us will ever experience. And he comes to this conclusion in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And so a dude that, that lived all of life, or as much of it as he could, came to a conclusion that, hey, as much as I've experienced, as much as I've learned, as much as I've pursued, man, here's the conclusion of all these things. Man, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And so, and so for us... This morning, I want us as a church to embark on a journey of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And, and so for some of us this morning, this is going to be a good reminder that we've been, by God's grace, following Him faithfully as a disciple, and it's going to encourage us to continue to do so. And for some of us, this morning and the next couple of weeks, we're going to realize that we're probably believers in Christ, but we're not truly disciples of Christ. And that's okay because God wants you to understand it so that you can take those steps. Does that make sense? And so, and so I've been praying for this series for a long time, and, and my heart is that I become a better disciple of Jesus Christ, and that corporately we become disciples of Christ. And so, and so in your notes, you've got a little uh, a handout this morning to, to kind of track with some notes, and, and somebody already made the comment. Uh, I noticed the notes have two sides this morning. And so one, thank you for your observation, your 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 awareness is, is keen. Uh, you know, uh, can we make it through two pages of notes in a Sunday morning? And the answer is yes. All right. If God can part the Red Sea, then Jay can maybe get through two pages of notes. You don't think so? Okay. Well, there, I, I think there's a bet against me right now. So uh, uh, are we betting lunch? Is that what we're doing? I mean, I mean, I like lunch. So, okay, we'll see. All right. So here's, here's what I want to do. I want to I just, on that front page, I want to give you some things as we open this series, some things that are, that are what I'm calling stats for nerds, right, or Bible students, because, because God's Word has a lot to say about disciples. As a matter of fact, it's used 274 times in 257 verses in your English King James Bible. There's only one instance in the Old Testament of the word disciple or disciples, and it's found in Isaiah 8, chapter 16. Today is actually, our sermon is going to be rooted around that verse in Isaiah. But just know that even in the Old Testament, God uses the word disciple. And, and that's very interesting to me because that's not just a New Testament thing. God wants to actually show us this pattern all the way through Scripture. 
As you get into the New Testament, the word disciple or disciple is used in the New Testament, but it's only through the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. As a matter of fact, it's not used in the New Testament after Acts chapter 21, and this is just a freebie, but it's used almost twice as many times as any other book in the book of John. As a matter of fact, the word disciple or disciple is used 82 times. And so if you're a Bible nerd and you like to study, that tells me that one of the books that we probably need to spend time in in this series is the book of John, because that book has some things to say about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so, and so this morning, I want you to go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 8, and as you're turning there, I, I want to just set the context, and, and maybe you've read the book of Isaiah, maybe you've studied it, maybe it's new to you, and, and I always want to to believe that there are new people in our church that are growing, and, and maybe you're here and you've never read the book of Isaiah, you've never read anything in the Old Testament. Man, I'm glad you're here, and the reason I'm glad you're here is because I think God will teach you some things today through the message, and so when you get to the book of Isaiah, it is one of the most unique books in the Bible. As a matter of fact, many people call the book of Isaiah a, a microcosm of the entire Bible. That one book actually encompasses, it, it's almost like a microscopic level overview of the entire Bible in one book. And so let me just give you some things that will help you. There's 66 books in the Bible, and many of you know you've got the greatest division between Old Testament and New Testament, right? And so in the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible are called the Old Testament, and the focus of that Old Testament primarily is God's Word, God's law, and what happens when people break it. God has established a law, He's established a standard uh, that He requires of His people, and, and man, God gave it, and then, and then His people broke it, and then because of that, there's captivity, there's consequence, there's sin. And that's the entire picture of the Old Testament. It's God's law and man's failure to keep God's law. But in the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, we read about God's grace and God's willingness to give grace when we can't keep his law. And that, that's, that's, just a, that's just a very quick Old Testament, New Testament comparison. And and man, you have the story of God's grace in the New Testament and the person of Jesus Christ. Well, you, when you study the book of Isaiah, it's very interesting. There's actually 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, and it actually breaks the same way the Bible breaks. In other words, the first 39 chapters deal with Isaiah revealing God's judgment on Israel, the nation of Israel, and over her disobedience to God's word. Those first 39 chapters, man, is, is, is Israel's backslidden condition and rebellion against God and, and God's judgment on their sin. And yet, starting in chapter 40 and the, and the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, you have the message of God's grace to the nation of Israel because he's going to deliver them from their captors and he's going to restore his people all the way the way he promised back, in, back to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And so, and so it's kind of interesting to me that even in this one book, you have an entire overview of the whole Bible that, that shows the consequence of God's judgment and rebellion against God's word. But man, there's a message of grace in there. There's a message of God's forgiveness and restoration 
to his people. Now, historically, as we study Isaiah, you need to know that Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet, specifically to the nation of Israel. And this is before or pre-exile. It's before the Babylonian captivity. And, and there's a lot of things that we could talk about. Isaiah lived during the time of the kings. As a matter of fact, he, he was uh, a, a compatriarch, if you will, of King Hezekiah. There, were, there was some overlap in Isaiah's ministry and King Hezekiah's ministry, uh, the, the king. And so, and so, man, just historically, that's where we're at. He's a prophet sent before the Babylonian captivity. You, you need a little white space for this. You don't have much on your notes. Isaiah actually had two sons. And, and if you go to Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 18, the Bible says that his children, his children, his two sons, are going to be for signs and wonders in Israel. And I'm not going to pronounce their names because I'll butcher it, truly. But if you go to Isaiah 8 and verse 3, Isaiah 7 and verse 3, uh, you're going you're gonna to see their names. Uh, you're going to see... Uh, Their two names, and their two names actually have prophetic application. One of their sons, his name means haste ye to the spoil. In other words, there's a judgment that's about to happen to Israel, and it's prophesied in his son's name. But then his second son has a name that means a remnant shall return. In other words, after judgment, there's going to be restoration. And so even in Isaiah's sons, God's painting a an amazing picture of judgment, but then restoration. And so get this key in your notes. This is, this is just to help you understand the history. The book of Isaiah was written for the pronouncement of judgment on Israel, prophecies concerning her future, and God's promises to restore her and all things. That, that is the focal point of the book of Isaiah. It, it is God's judgment, but it's also prophecy of restoration because God's going to keep his promise going to keep his promise to the nation of Israel. And so, and so this Old Testament book matters, man, it matters. It matters to Israel in the Old Testament because they went into captivity, but then God brought them back from their captivity into their land. But we also know that the Bible is not just a book of history. The Bible is actually a, a book of prophecy. It teaches us doctrine. And so the book of Isaiah actually points to a future captivity for the nation of Israel and a restoration in the time of tribulation. And so if, you, you know, if you've read or studied anything about end times, you've heard of like the tribulation period or the great tribulation. And, and what's interesting is the book of Isaiah in your Bible is found after the book of the Song of Solomon. And the book of the Song of Solomon is a, is a song between a bridegroom and his bride, the love of his life. And it's a picture of Christ and his church in the Song of Solomon. And immediately after that is the book of Isaiah, where God turns his attention back to his people, the nation of Israel, right? And we know that during the tribulation period, after God calls his church up, the rapture of the church, we know that on this earth, God is going to turn his attention back to his people, the nation of Israel. And, and they're going to be under captivity through, through the Antichrist. There's going to be oppression and tribulation. And there's going to be a faithful remnant that in that time of tribulation, God will deliver back and restore. And so there is a, a doctrinal application of that. But devotionally, God is trying to prepare his people for a coming judgment. And, and, so, and so devotionally, we're going to land in this text And we're going to see the first mention and the only mention of the word disciples 
in the Old Testament. And I think we have to start there. As we, as we talk about refreshing and, and, and men refocusing on discipleship, the more I studied this, the more I was like, this is very interesting. This, this Old Testament picture gives us clarity on what God's heart is toward discipleship. All the way back in Isaiah. And God is preparing a people for imminent judgment, and God is going to use a prophet named Isaiah. And he's armed with God's words. And he's going to go prepare a people for their coming captivity and to help them endure tribulation in the face of their enemy. Well, listen, we as the church don't go through the tribulation period. But God's word tells us very clearly that we have tribulation now in, in, our, in our life. We, we experience difficulty. We have an enemy, the devil, that wants to destroy us. And so in a spiritual sense, there is difficulty that we face. So how do we overcome those things? Well, that's our, that's our goal this morning. Isaiah chapter 8. Let me read verses 11 to 16. That was all introduction, by the way. How are we doing, Josh? I, I'm on the sheet. Are we okay? We're okay? Uh, uh, we're still good. All right. So Isaiah chapter 8. We're going to read verses 11 to 16. I'm going to pray. We're going to hit the last points. Uh, you'll get your notes done and we'll get up out of here. Isaiah 8 verse 11. This is the passage we'll look at this morning. The Bible says, For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand. Isaiah talking about himself, that God had spoken to him. And instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, both to the houses of Israel. And for gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law, listen, among my disciples. Let's pray and ask God to give us what we need. Father, we need you this morning. God, I need you. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that teaches us. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to this place and learn about you. Learn of your way. God, your, your yoke is easy, your burden is light. Help us to, to desire to be disciples of you and empower us through this passage to see it clearly so that we can walk with you. We love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This is going to be a really cool passage to study this morning. Point number one in your notes is this. As we, as we look at this passage, we're going to see a pattern of biblical disciples that we can learn from even in the Old Testament. And the first key is this. Biblical disciples are receptive to God's words. They're receptive to God's words. A disciple of Christ has a sensitivity to the word of God. And so Isaiah is the prophet. And he says in verse 11, The Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me. And so the first thing that we see is that Isaiah, obviously, he's a prophet in the Old Testament. God's word is revealed to him through the Holy Spirit of God. As a matter of fact, if you go to 2 Peter chapter 1, God's Word tells us that in the Old Testament, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That happened in the New Testament too, by the way. It's not, it's not just Old Testament dependent. But, but, but men didn't come up with their own literature. God spoke to them through their Holy Spirit. They heard God speak they spoke God's word, and eventually they wrote it down. Here's the point I'm trying to make. A biblical disciple has an ear to hear 
God's Word. And listen, the first thing that any of us should hear is the gospel, right? I mean, that, that ought to be the very first thing that we hear. If we don't hear anything else, that doesn't help us if we're not saved. We have to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. Here's the danger in our culture of Christianity. Many Christians, not you, not, not the people in this room, just the other Christians, many people have heard the gospel, and that's the last thing they've heard from God. Not because God quit talking, because they quit listening. And I'm telling you, man, there's something about a disciple that's receptive to hear God's Word. So listen, it's the Spirit of God that reveals the Word of God. That's why you need to be encouraged. Your ability to hear God's Word is not dependent on a bumbling preacher, truly, from South Alabama. Man, listen, it's not dependent on the gas bag in the pulpit. What it is dependent on is the person of the Holy Spirit. And listen, God is still speaking in the sense that he wants to reveal his word through his Holy Spirit into your heart. And so listen, if, if 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 you're really questioning, if you're a disciple of Christ, ask yourself this question, are you still receptive to God's word? John chapter 17, verses 6 through 8, and and, and again, I told you John is an important book concerning disciples and and disciple-making and discipleship. Can you look at John 17 and verse 6? Look what Jesus says about his ministry of making disciples during his earthly ministry. He says, I've manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. And, and they have what? They've received them and have known surely that I came from thee and that thou hast believed that thou didst send me. And, and so again, you see this pattern that a disciple of Christ has a sensitivity to God's word. They're willing to receive it and keep it. And no offense, that's why you have notes, man. Not so you can just fill in the blanks. But God wants to give you something that you can walk out of here and keep in your heart and live by faith. And so here's the key question as we get going. Do I receive or reject God's words? And the answer to that question reveals whether or not you are a believer in Christ, assuming that you have believed in the gospel, or you are a disciple of Christ. In other words, you can be a believer. And man, unfortunately, you can also not be a disciple. Because, because what makes the difference is what you do after you've, after you've heard the gospel. And so, you know, Chris leads our evangelism class, and, and, and I know Chris is very strategic in getting some of you guys to come out and, and go on uh, evangelism opportunities. Go down to the park and share the gospel. Go different places in the city and one of the things that we were talking about this week, uh, because we're getting ready for ministry tools and training, and we have a whole eight weeks of, of training on personal evangelism. And one of the things that Chris said was, you know, it's interesting, all the people that I run across, probably six out of ten say that they're saved. But they're not in church. They're not walking with God. They have no corporate body that they fellowship in, and they're not engaged in the mission that God has left his church to accomplish. So you can be a believer in Christ and not be a disciple of Christ. 
And, and, and no offense, man, our city is full of people like that. And, and our churches, unfortunately, are not this church, of course, but, but other churches are, are full of people like that. And, and the key begins with the receptiveness to God's word. Listen, the moment you get saved, God began a conversation with you that he wants to continue. He has things that he wants to teach you and reveal to you, but you've got to be receptive to his word. I have to be receptive to his word. That's what what helps me become a disciple of Christ. Number two, as we see from the passage, biblical disciples not only are receptive to God's word, but number two, biblical disciples have a right walk. They have a right walk. And so look at what God tells Isaiah. Verse 11, For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them who this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Now, you have to understand kind of the context. What, what God is telling Isaiah is that there's going to come a captor, right? The Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and take the nation of Israel captive, the northern kingdom first, and then the southern kingdom and God is, warning Nebuch- or God is warning Isaiah, hey, some of the nation of Israel are going to say when the captor comes, hey, let's be confederate. Let, let's make an agreement to not be enemies. You don't kill us and we'll do whatever you say, right? It, it, it's kind of like they were compromising their integrity to, to protect their own life because they were fearful of the Babylonian captors. And, and so God's plea to Isaiah is, hey, listen, dude. Don't be confederate like all these other people are going to be confederate. Don't tell your enemy, hey, let's just be cool with each other. As a matter of fact, he says, listen, don't even walk the way that that Israel is going to walk. Your walk needs to look different. Because here's what's what's on the table. Man, when, when Nebuchadnezzar and those Babylonians come in, it's a false confederacy. And it's a false peace that ultimately gets replaced with conquer and captivity. And that's how the devil works. You can't make a deal with this world system or the devil himself. But the the sad reality is that many believers are content to do just that. They're willing to say to the world, let's just go along to get along. Let's just go along to get along. And as soon as my life can get back to normal, it will be better for me. And listen, God warns Isaiah, don't walk like these people walk. Don't settle for what these people settle for. Don't compromise for your own sake or even for your own safety. You need to walk different. And so a disciple walks different, man. A disciple walks different than just a believer in Christ. And a disciple certainly walks different than the lost world. And, and, and so here's the key. Look at Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Okay, and, and again, man, we don't have time to, to exhaust the references, but, but God has a lot to say about our walk. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man that walketh... What's the next word? Okay, so God, God is not only interested in where you walk, but he's interested in where you don't walk. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, so, so don't listen to the wisdom of this world. That's not healthy for you. That's not profitable for you. Don't walk in that counsel. And then he says, don't stand in the way of sinners. 
or sit in the seat of the scornful. And, and, and I hope you can see the progression, or, or maybe the better word is the regression. Someone's walking, and then they stop walking, and then they pull up a chair and they sit down. And if we're not careful as Christians, as believers in Christ, the reality is that we'll start, instead of walking with God and toward the things of God, we'll start not walking that path. We'll still be walking, but we'll walk in the, in the counsel of the ungodly. And it won't be long before your walk will turn into a stand. and You'll start having conversations and, and start looking like the lost world, and, and eventually you'll actually sit down and lose your testimony, and lose your mission. So look at verse 2. His delight is in the law of God. In his law doth he meditate day and night. And so a biblical disciple has a right walk. Look at Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. Again, kind of a New Testament application. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. These guys were saved. Man, they were lost. They were just lost like us. And they got the gospel. And then Paul is writing back, and he's encouraging them. Hey, listen. Now that you're saved and you're a believer, it's time for you to follow Christ. Okay, look at verse 17. I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk, what's the next word? Walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through ignorance that's in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness, that's unbridled lust, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but ye have not so learned Christ. And, and he goes on and he says, man, you need to put off the old man and put on the new man. See, God cares about our walk. I mean, I mean listen, where you're walking and where you're not walking really makes the difference between whether you're a believer in Christ or a disciple of Christ. And so Isaiah, if you go back to his story, he had two competing walks that he had to deal with because he was in a nation of people that were God's people, Israel. But yet, man, the majority of that nation wasn't walking with God. The majority of that nation was backslidden against God. They didn't reverence God's word. They didn't fear God rightly. And so, and so Isaiah had to compete with the carnality of his own people. Because they, they didn't know God. They didn't, they didn't want to worship God. But he also had to compete with the enemy that's coming to take them captive. And God's, God's commandment to him was, hey, Isaiah, listen. You need to walk a different path than both these parties. You don't need to look like backslidden Israel. And you don't need to look like the enemy. You need to have your own walk with me. That's what being a disciple is all about, even if it means walking alone with the Lord, because you're never alone, man, in your relationship with God. And listen, God, God wants you to walk with Him, even if no one else will. So here's the key question. Is my walk taking me closer to or further from God? And if you don't know the answer to that question, look at where your feet are pointed, because wherever they're pointed is where you're going to get. And I mean that physically and spiritually. Like I worked in physical therapy for a long, long time. And so we did like gait training and, and we watched and evaluated people's gait and ambulation and all. I could bore you with a lot of weird stuff. And I still people watch a little bit. So like when you're walking across the room, I'm, I'm just going to be watching. And, 
Some of you have back pain and hip pain. I already know that. Like, you don't even have to tell me. But man, but man, here's what I know about walking. Wherever your feet are pointed, that's where you're going to go. That's simple. Wherever those feet are pointed is where you're going to go. And that's true physically, and it's true spiritually. And so evaluate where your position is spiritually. Is my walk taking me closer to God? Are the things that are part of my life moving, moving me toward a deeper relationship with God and a walk with Him? Or actually, from the time I got saved to now, I'm really no, no closer to God than, than where I began. Okay, and listen, man, hear, hear me. All you have to do is turn your feet. Because, because listen, God, is, God is, is pursuing you. He's initiating a relationship with you. And maybe you're here this morning and you know, man, that you're a believer in Christ. But you also know you're not a disciple of Christ. I'm telling you, the Word of God says if you'll draw nigh to God, He'll draw nigh to you. You know, in that garden back in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned, do you know that immediately after they sinned, that it was God himself in the garden, walking, looking for them? He initiated reconciliation. He initiated resuming the relationship, even though they failed. God's, God's the same way in your life. God, God wants you to have a relationship with him, but your walk is what determines that. And it's the difference between being a believer in Christ and a disciple of Christ. Okay, and then, and then number three, God tells us through this passage that biblical disciples reverence God's person. They have a right response to God's word. They have a right walk. But number three, they reverence rightly God's person. So look at verse 13. So, so God tells Isaiah, sanctify the Lord himself and let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. Now remember, this enemy, because of God's judging hand against Israel, this outside enemy, the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, are going to come conquer Israel for a short time. And what God is telling Isaiah is, hey, hey bro, listen, seriously. Like, maybe you've got a lot to be afraid of, but you ain't got to be afraid of that. You don't have to be afraid of them. You don't have to be afraid of backslidden Israel. You just need to have a right perspective of God. Have a right reverence of God's person. Sanctify the Lord himself. That means to set apart. There's something about setting apart a right heart toward God's person. And so 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your, in your hearts. You set God apart. You set your relationship with God apart personally, and you reverence his person. And you're ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's, that's in you with meekness and fear. And it, and it says, let him be your fear. Let God himself be your fear. And I know we live in a culture, man, that, that does not understand the fear of the Lord. And yet, according to the word of God, it's very clear. Matthew 10 and verse 28 says that we should have a right reverence of fear of the Lord. Yes, he's my father, but he's also to be feared. Matthew 10 and verse 28, it says, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. And again, if you go back to that Old Testament context, the Babylonians had the power to wipe out Israel, for sure. For sure. 
And in our country, like we struggle with this because historically we've had a decent military and we've been able to fight a little bit. Well, those days may be over, quite honestly. And there's people in our country now that are going to learn what it is to fear other nations. We're going to learn that. But, but you shouldn't fear them because all they can do is take your life. God says our fear should be to him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And there's only one person that can do that. That's God Almighty. And, and if you have a right fear and reverence of God, you don't truly have to fear anything else. That's what God is telling Isaiah. That's what God is telling us. Isaiah 9 and verse 31 says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and they were edified. Listen, the churches were walking in the fear of the Lord. That's New Testament application. You say, well, I don't, I don't think we should fear God. Well, I think you should read your Bible. Man, He is our Father. Man, we're part of His family. And all that's true. But don't, but don't take just one side of the same coin. He is God. And He is to be feared. He has the power to destroy body and soul in hell. Well, that's worthy of fear. And God is telling Isaiah, if you'll let God be your fear, you don't have to fear anything else. He says, let him be your dread. And again, it had, it had to be dreadful for the Babylonians and for Nebuchadnezzar to come and conquer Israel. That had to be a dreadful thought because Israel's history was, as long as they were right with God, man, they were victorious against any nation, small or large. And now they're in a position where they're not right with God. And man, it had to be dreadful to think that Nebuchadnezzar and his armies and the Babylonians were going to destroy them. And, and, and I, I guarantee you they feared that and they dreaded that. Let me give you the, the spiritual application for us. Man, as much as maybe the enemy is to be dreaded, God himself is to be dreaded more. I don't know if I agree with that. Well, here's what I think. I think many believers in Christ in our culture of Christianity have a greater fear of the devil than they do of God himself. We're worried about what the devil's going to do to us and how he's going to destroy our life and how he's going to you know, give us turmoil and tribulation and come against us and, and all these different... Man, we fear that and we dread that. And yet if we have a right perspective of God... We don't even need to fear that. So, so Malachi chapter 4, Malachi understood this in verses 5 and 6. He says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. And man, that's going to be a dreadful day. It's going to be a dreadful day. Back, back when Jacob experienced a, an encounter with God in Genesis 28, you know, you read this story and God appeared to him. And in Genesis 28, verse 16, it says, Jacob awakened out of his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And he was what? He was afraid. And he said, how dreadful is this place? There's none, this is none other but the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. I mean, Jacob had a right reverence, man. I mean, he woke up and realized where he was and who it is that he, he saw and heard. And it made him fear. And it made him realize that, man, this is, this is dreadful. 
So, so why does this matter? Well, well, here's what God, I think, is telling Isaiah. If you'll let me be your dread and you let me be your fear, he says in verse 14 that he, God himself, shall be for a sanctuary. So here's the key. Get this down. A right reverence gives you rest in God's person. Because when you have a right perspective and reverence of him, man, listen, it, it settles your heart toward anything else. It settles your heart. You see, God's person for Isaiah was going to be the holy place where he could worship and find refuge. And again, contextually, you need to know that because of the Babylonian captivity, the temple was going to be destroyed. It was going to be ransacked. All the holy instruments would have been taken out. Everything would have, been, would have stopped. The sacrifices would cease. And so listen, worship isn't reserved for a place. It's reserved for a person. And Isaiah is hearing from God that, that, man, God can be a sanctuary for you. Even in tribulation, even during God's judgment, God's people can have a sanctuary in God's person. That's why you can enjoy God's presence, not just on Sunday morning. He ought to be your sanctuary. Monday morning and Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, you can visit God's house. You can worship Him. You can experience Him. You can have a relationship with Him. Because he is the sanctuary. He is the sanctuary that's available to us. Now, now look at verse 14. Because, because God is telling Isaiah, if you have a right reverence of my person, I'm going to be for you a sanctuary. But then he says this word in verse 14 that's always, you've got to pay attention to this word in the Bible, but. And here's the other side of the perspective. As much as God can be a sanctuary for those that rightly reverence him, he said, but I'm also going to be something to some other people that don't reverence me right. Here's what I'm going to be. A stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both houses of Israel and a gin that's like a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. You see, the same God that's a sanctuary to some will be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to others. That happens every Sunday. Man, God's people gather, we hear from His Word, and some people, by God's grace, deepen their relationship with God. And some people walk out offended and stumble to their own demise. The difference is how you reverence his person. And here's God's warning to Israel. He says, many are going to stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. It seems like the majority, God's not going to be their sanctuary, but instead God's going to be their stumbling block. Man, when I read that, my heart breaks. And the reason my heart breaks is because God's people Just like in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, had lost their love for God. They had lost their love for God's Word. They had forgotten His marvelous works. They had forgotten their deliverance from Egypt, God's miracle of provision in the wilderness, and God's mighty hand in battle. And they're stumbling and falling and being broken and ensnared and taken captive by the enemy, the Babylonians. Can I just tell you the same thing's happening today? But instead of a physical enemy, it's a spiritual enemy. 
And man, listen, we have Christians that, that believe in the person of Jesus Christ. They know God as their Savior. They know Christ as their Savior. And yet, many have lost their love for His Word. Many have forgotten what it took to deliver them from their sin. Many have forgotten the times where when they needed God to show up, man, He showed up mightily and provided heavenly provision when there seemed to be no hope. When they needed a battle fought and they fought on their knees and asked God to intervene on their behalf and God showed up, man, Christians and believers have forgotten and now they're stumbling and falling and broken and ensnared by the devil himself and ineffective in the ministry. And let's not be like that. Go to, go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll just look on the screen very quickly for, for time's sake because Josh owes me lunch. But, but 2 Timothy chapter 2, and God tells us that that can happen to us even as a believer in Christ. That, that, man, we can get so messed up that instead of God being our sanctuary, he becomes a stumbling block and we get ensnared by the devil himself. Look at 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24. It says, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure would give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Listen, can I just tell you that as a believer in Christ, there are times where you and I can't follow Christ because we've allowed ourselves to get trapped. We've allowed ourselves to get ensnared, and it's the snare of the devil. And God says what we need is instruction. So that we can acknowledge the truth of God's word, we can repent, and we can recover ourselves. I think sometimes we think that God should just drag us out of that. And yet God says the way, I, the way of recovery is receiving instruction. It goes back to the authority of God's word in our life. Can I just tell you, listen, man, the devil can mess up men. Even saved men and women. And man, listen, if we're not careful in walking with God, we can be taken captive because of our sin, and the devil can take us captive. He can always find the reasons and the grounds to falsely accuse us or rightly accuse us. And can I just tell you, when that happens, there's no recovery without us acknowledging the truth. And there's no acknowledging of the truth until you turn from your sin to God's word. That's how you recover yourself. And God gives you repentance and, and he gives you a recovery method when you and I are willing to receive instruction. And so, and so listen, man, God's, I know we got to go, but and God's person, and it's in your notes, God's person can either be a sanctuary for you or a stumbling block to you. And, and the answer to that question really determines if you're a disciple of Christ or just a believer in Christ. God keeps messing up your plans, messing up your agenda, messing up your finances, messing up your plans. And your Listen, man, yeah, God keeps messing it up because you don't have a right reverence of Him. 
He's become a stumbling block to you. Instead of a place of rest and worship, sacrifice, and relationship. And Israel was about to miss out. Isaiah was not. Isaiah wasn't going to miss out. And then, and then lastly, let's get it done here. The last thing we see is that biblical disciples actually reproduce disciples. And we see that in verse 16. And, and so th- this, to me, is very encouraging because, because even in this time of tribulation and difficulty and captivity, man, God puts a high precedent on preserving his word. Look at verse 16. He says, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And so, and so that phrase, the testimony in your Bible always points to God's written words. And even with the coming captivity and even with the oppressor that's coming in and even with a backslidden nation, God says, hey, listen, I'm looking for somebody that will be faithful with my words. I want you to bind them up and I want you to seal them among my disciples. So, so go to Exodus 25 or 16. Just to prove this out, God talking about the law, the written word of God on the tablets, he says, thou shalt put in the ark of, in, into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. Uh, Exodus 31 verse 18, he gave Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. So these are the written words of God written on tablets of stone. They're called the testimony. Now, you know the story. Man, Moses got mad with Israel, broke the original copy, and, and God's word still didn't disappear. It didn't vanish. God gave another copy, and it was, just, it was just as accurate and authoritative. Here's the point. The point is God is looking for someone to take his words and invest them in someone else. He says, bind those words and that, word, that phrase bind up means secure God's words, tie it up, guard it, seal the law, fasten it. And he's like, man, do that among my disciples. So, so a disciple is someone who's been given stewardship of God's words. And what you do with those words matter. Like God, God really is interested in faithfulness concerning his word. He also calls those disciples my disciples. And I'm thankful for that because can I just tell you that we're not interested in making disciples of Jay around here. Everybody would say amen right there because like we don't need more of that guy. We're, we're not interested in making disciples of Cody or Colin or Corey or, or anybody else. We're, we're interested in making disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and if we're not careful in the ministry of discipleship, if you think because somebody... Jay discipled you or Cody discipled you that you're anything, listen, we failed you as a discipler. Let me give you 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and, and we'll wind it down right here. Paul, Paul addressing a, a carnal church in Corinth. This thing of, of discipleship became a dividing and contentious point in Corinth. He says, he says in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, there be no divisions among you, you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brother, by them of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So, you know, the gossip train is, is working, and word gets on the street to Paul that there's divisions in this church. Look at verse 12. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I'm of Paul, 
I mean, Paul discipled me. And there's another group over here saying, I'm of Apollos. And there's another group saying, I'm of Cephas. And the real spiritual giants in the church said, well, I'm of Christ. And so you can't trump that because Jesus is always the answer, right? And then Paul says, listen, man, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Was Cody crucified for you or Jay? No. No. Man, we're not about disciples of men, but we are about disciples of Christ. And so Paul said, listen, I didn't even baptize you in my name. He even says, I didn't even baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Like, I, I, don't even, I, don't even, I don't even want to go on record of who I baptized. That's not the gospel. The gospel is different than baptism. He says, listen, I don't even want people thinking I baptized in my own name. The point is, we need to be about making disciples of Christ. And so, and so as it relates to biblical discipleship, Isaiah was to take God's word, and he was to steward it to other people, God's disciples. And, and they were to make sure that that word of God was bound up and sealed so that they didn't lose any of it. So, so here's the question for all of us, man. Am I investing... God's words into others. And if not, why not? And, and maybe you need to understand today that you need to be on the receiving end of that first. Because you can't invest what you don't have. So, so years ago, when uh, Apple was like taking Apple, you know, like iPhone, iPad, all that stuff. So way back in the day, man, because I'm old. I remember, I remember when kind of the Mac stuff was really like starting to take off. Like, like I got my first Apple computer way back in the day, an old iMac, G4 processor, any of, any of the nerds in the, in the house. This is before they went to the Intel chip, okay? And so like you were only like a graphic designer or a movie maker and, and you had Apple stuff. You didn't, you didn't waste your time with PC stuff, right? And so, man, I got an iMac and I was like, this is the best computer I've ever had, period. Like this is absolutely amazing. And then the iPhone came out, and I was like, this is the best phone on the planet. And back then, everybody had a BlackBerry. Do you remember those things? I think Allie had one. And so we got in a little bit of, you know, we almost need a marriage counseling because I was like, this thing is so much better than your piece of trash BlackBerry. I mean, truly. But everybody in the corporate world used BlackBerries, right? I mean, all, everybody on the arsenal, all the government people, everybody had their stupid little keyboard or whatever. And uh, here's the point. Here, you're like, what? what are you talking about? Man, I knew right then I need to dump some money in this. I have no money. If I'd invested $1,000 in Apple stock back then, well, we'd have a lot nicer building. That, that'd be for sure. The HVAC would work a little, a little bit better than what it is right now. And, uh, and I may be in a nicer car. Probably not. Still busted up old Toyotas. But, but the point is I couldn't invest in it because I didn't have anything to invest as a disciple of Christ, can I tell you, listen, if you haven't been invested in, you have nothing to give to other people. Now, if you're a believer, you can give people the gospel because you've received that, right? You, you understand that. But anything beyond that, you've got to receive it first. You can't give what you don't have. If I can't invest God's word into other people, could it be that I actually need to be the one to get invested in. That's the difference between being a believer in Christ and 
being a disciple of Christ. And so close your Bibles very quickly. We're not, we're not going to sing or anything, but, but can I just ask you to prayerfully consider these things? Four questions that I asked you in the sermon. Number one, do I receive or reject God's words? Now listen, if you've rejected the gospel, that's the only thing that, that God wants you to respond to. That's the first thing that you have to respond to. You can't know anything else or, 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 or truly any other knowledge from God's word does you no good if you reject the gospel. But once you receive it, is that the last thing that you've received from God's word? Man, I hope not. If it is, you're just a believer in Christ. You're not a disciple. And I, I would encourage you, man, listen, God wants a relationship with you. Number two, is, is my walk taking me closer to God or further from God? From the moment I got saved, could I honestly say that my walk with God every day, every week, every year is bringing me closer to Him? And if not, why not? It may be because your feet are turned the wrong direction. Number three, is God a sanctuary to you or a stumbling block to you? Is he the place that you find refuge, or are you actually caught in the snare of the devil because of sinful choices? And if you are, man, there's grace. Listen, can you receive instruction so that you can recover yourself out of the devil's snare? And then, man, what am I doing with God's word? Some of us need to be invested in. Some of us at this place have been discipled. You need to be doing the investing. Because you've been given something of great value that will withstand the test of time and tribulation and the enemy. But you've got to do something with it. You've got to find somebody that will be faithful and give it to them. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for your word. I, I, I do pray, God. I know we're, we're right on the nose on the time. But, but Lord, it, it's just good to sit back and evaluate ourselves examine ourselves, And God, for some of us, Lord, maybe today is, is the spark that's needed to get the fire going in our heart to have a right walk with you. Lord, I, what I pray is, God, for me, I, I want to be a better disciple. I want to follow you, Lord. I don't want to just be a believer in Christ. I'm thankful for the provision on the cross. God, I want to walk with you, and I want to follow you, and, and God, I want to I steward your word, and I don't want to fear this world system or fear the enemy, God, I want to have a right reverence of you so that you can be my sanctuary. God, I pray for our church. Lord, help us to understand these things. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, God, don't let them leave this place without come talking to me. And, and let me just, by God's grace, share the gospel with them. Maybe, maybe there are people here that, that would really know today, they would acknowledge today in their heart, yeah, I am a believer in Christ, I know that. But the truth is I'm not a disciple. I'm not, a, I'm not a follower, but man, I want to own that and learn to walk with Christ. And with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I think that's the, greatest, that's the greatest question to ask today. Who in this place is a believer, but not truly a disciple? And would God's Holy Spirit have worked on your heart today to say, you know what, I need to make that decision? Would you raise your hand and say, man, that's me, Jay. Would you pray for me? Help me to understand how to walk with you. Anyone that would say, God bless you. Anyone else? Man, just be before you and the Lord, man, I just want to pray for you as your pastor. Anyone that say, man, that's me. Anyone at all. Father, you know our hearts. You see our hands. God, thank you for your word.
pray you challenge us, encourage us, give us grace this week as we walk with you. We'll thank you for it, and we ask it all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, it's heating up in here. Again, I'm